Cast Ball Show. Brought to you by JohnPLE.com. What the f you think is my opinion of it? I think it was f- f- put that in. I don't. So the tribe drops its third straight on this trip, six to one to the Rangers. For the Indians, one run on, let's say, one hit. That's all we got. One goddamn hit. Don't worry, nobody's listening anyway. I'm talking about the past, I'm talking about the history, I'm talking about what's great about this game of baseball. There's so much stuff that we talk about. I would say I wouldn't know, but I would say the reason why they want to pass is baseball going into the highest baseball sport that has gone into baseball, and from the baseball angle, I'm not going to speak of any other sport. Let me start by telling you this. I have never used steroids, period. Jerry, just remember it's not a lie if you believe it. Joe Carter with a three-run homer. The winners and still world champions, the Toronto Blue Jays. And this he sucks. Well, he is out. He's out. Yes, Brady is out. Look at, look at this. Brady is out. And uh, Damon Mack. I don't want to hear to argue about other sports. I'm in the baseball business. It's been run cleaner than any baseball business ever put out in the hundred years of the present time. Sell the team. Oh yeah, welcome to John Pielli, Passball Show, MTR Radio Network, hour number two of the radio program. And I had a chance to speak with Dan Schlossberg. And Dan, of course, is a well-known baseball author. He's written a book about the 300-game winner. He's also written a book about Milo Hamilton, the legendary broadcaster. And he's also a big Braves fan. He hosts a podcast called Braves Banter, where he interviews players and talks about the state of the Atlanta Braves. And the Braves season, of course, comes to a head with the loss in the best of five series to the Los Angeles Dodgers, dropping in four games. And we, you know, we talk a little bit about that. So I hopefully you guys enjoy this little spot with well-known baseball author Dan Schlossberg. Good afternoon, it's John Pielli. I'm here with the host of Braves Banter and, of course, well-known baseball author Dan Schlossberg. Dan, what's going on, man? Yes, I'm fine. How are you? Nah, I'm doing all right, man. And of course, you know, you know, the, the, the timing of this comes, you know, perfect right after the Braves end up. Uh, the season comes to a close yesterday. Uh, you know, unfortunate. You know, I think there's things that could have gone a little differently. I think the, you know, I liked the Braves' chances last night. Unfortunately, it just didn't work out though. Well, yeah, Craig Kimball was pretty upset. You could see him talking to himself in the bullpen. He wasn't right in the eighth inning. Now, I tell you, what's interesting about that, and I had actually touched on this a little bit earlier with, uh, you know, on another show that I was on, uh, it seemed like the eighth inning of that game. Uh, I, I know, you know, there was time that went on in there, but to me it happened a little too fast. The Puig double, the missed bun, and then the home run. All of a sudden the Braves are down. Uh, I think, you know, it's so easy to second-guess a manager in that spot. you got a pitcher that's as good, as successful, and as dominant as Craig Kimbrell is. Why not just bring him in to start the eighth inning? But you got to be honest, Major League Baseball has changed to a point where closers are essentially one-inning pitchers. Yeah, this is true, except when you're out of time, and this was an elimination game for the Braves, everybody, you know, things change, things change. And Craig Gonzalez made a major move before that, that really influenced that whole inning. 
what he did, but he brought in Jordan Seifert. He should have put him in center field and put Hayward with the superior arm in right field. Had he done that, Hayward would have thrown out point in second place without a question. And the whole thing would have changed. Uh, very good point, man. And I tell you, you know, a lot of things that happened during the game, you know, he could could have gone either way. The Braves were very much in this. Obviously, led the game going late. Um, you know, what? You know, let's just get into a couple things in regards to the Braves and their season because they finished with the most wins in the National League. Uh, very good start. They struggled for the middle half of the year, but picked it up. You know, as we get into July, August, and September, played some really good baseball. And I'll tell you, in spite of what happened last night, there's really nothing to be ashamed of when it goes down to the 2013 Atlanta Braves. Well, I tend to disagree with you just a little bit, John, because I call it slump timber. If you look at their record, they really did not play even 500 ball in September. And because of that, they missed by one game of getting the wild card in the postseason. Had they played Pittsburgh in the postseason, I really think the Braves would still be playing. No, it's not a bad point. I tell you, you know, you talk about the races as you get into September, and I've talked about it a lot, the fact that the National League playoff teams were pretty much set. It was just a matter of seeding and what teams were going to finish, uh, you know, with, with the best record, and obviously the St. Louis Cardinals ended up uh, edging the Braves there, and uh, yeah, I mean, if the Braves were playing, uh, let's say, the Pittsburgh Pirates, now, listen, I don't think the Pittsburgh Pirates are anything to, you know, say that it would be an easy task. You know, the Cardinals are, you know, taking them to a game five. They needed a decisive pitching performance to be able to be in that spot. But, yeah, I think I think you could say, hey, if the Braves won a couple more games in September, perhaps they'd be in a little bit better of a position and maybe have a more favorable opponent as opposed to have to go against the Los Angeles Dodgers. Yeah, very much so. The Dodgers, three, four, and five hitters were just – unstoppable if we're talking about Henry Ramirez and Adrian Gonzalez and Yasiel Puig. Those guys were on fire, all three of them. When you get your three, four, and five guys clicking like that, nobody could beat them. I don't think the Cardinals are going to beat them if they keep on hitting like that. Man, that's how you factor in the pitching and be, to be able to throw a guy like Clayton Kershaw out. And, you know, I was, I was very interested to see how it was going to turn out yesterday. Clayton Kershaw never pitched in a game on uh, three days rest in his entire career. Ends up getting a call. I'm sure he had a lot to do with him uh, him getting that start. Well, did you did you think that the Braves' chances maybe increased a little bit by having Kershaw on three days rest for the first time in his career? Uh, definitely not, because Ricky Nolasco has been pitching poorly, and the Dodgers knew that, that he probably wasn't going to win, so that's why they brought in Kershaw. Even a, a tired Kershaw is better than a rested Nolasco. Not very true, man. And I tell you, you look at, you know, Nolasco, who went, once he once he was acquired by L.A., pitched very well for the month of August in September. I think he had something like a 6 ERA for his starts in September. I'm sure that had to be factored into there. But, you know, the, the Braves get off, you know, they're, they're down 2 nothing with the two uh, Carl Crawford home runs. They end up getting a couple gifts in that inning, a couple bad defensive plays, a couple missed double plays, and, uh, you know, a, a, a very questionable wild pitch that doesn't look like the catcher really did a good job in trying to trying to block the ball. And the Braves were able to tie the game. Certainly uh, a point in the game where you really felt the momentum was starting to swing, even though it was a little, un, un, you know, a little inten- unintentionally for the Dodgers defense. But it looked like the momentum was starting to swing towards Atlanta at that point. Yeah, I thought so too. But the Dodgers have never been a great defensive team. I mean, they do have some good defensive players individually, but as a team, they're not really great on defense. Their strength is pitching, starting pitching, and hitting. Uh, their bullpen is so-so, not as good as Atlanta's, except 
in this series, everything went the other way. The great Atlanta bullpen didn't hold up. David Carpenter twice came into the eighth inning and gave up a two-run homer. So that's unusual for him. No, absolutely. Carpenter's been a, a, a very big bright spot for the Atlanta Braves this year. His, his uh, emergence has become a late-game reliever for the first time in his career. How, how much do you feel that the Braves you know, miss having guys like Johnny Venters and Eric, Eric O'Flaherty in that bullpen? I'm sure that was, that, that, that was a pretty big deal. You know, it would be a different look if you had guys like that in there. Of course, you know, it's something that's uncontrollable with the injuries. Yeah, very, very true. Eric O'Flaherty was a terrific out, man, the eighth inning. I think one year's ERA was under one for the season, and that's pretty phenomenal. And Ventures, you know, he throws real hard. He sort of like Kimbrough, only a left-handed version. So when you have guys like that, the game is pretty much over by the time he gets past the seventh inning. This year was mix and match. I mean, Walden pitched very well for a while, then he got hurt, and he wasn't the same after he came back. So the Braves, you know, it was a crapshoot. Best of five series is always a crapshoot. Anything can happen. And the team that gets hot and this healthy team usually wins. That's what happened here. I mean, no Tim Hudson, for example. And even Jason Hayward, although he had that one home run, the only Atlanta home run, he wasn't the same intimidating force that he had been before he got hit in the face with, you know, the John Rennie stick. So the Braves had some serious injuries to overcome, and I don't think they're quite ready for the playoffs. Now, I'll tell you one thing that was interesting, and I, I kind of got on it, but, you know, looking back, you look at Freddie Gonzalez's options, uh, Freddie Garcia pitching an elimination game. On paper, that looks terrible. But looking back to see what, what had happened with the Braves and, you know, not having a guy like Hudson and not really having anybody step up, could have very well, you could make a case that that was the best option for him. What did you think initially about uh, Freddie Garcia starting game four? I was glad. I thought it was a good move. He pitched very well with the Braves. He really only had one bad game, and that's what he used in relief. And Philadelphia, he came in and threw a home run ball in the bottom of the ninth inning after the Braves tied it with two outs in the top of the ninth against Jonathan Papelbon. And, of course, they're carried in. That's the one game difference that gave them the Dodgers as the opponent. But Freddie pitched very well as a starting pitcher for the Braves. He deserved to start, and he pitched well last night, except for Carl Crawford. And it's kind of amazing. Here's a guy with seven home runs for the whole season, and then he gets three in a game and a half. No, I tell you, it is, and I tell you, you look at the history of postseason, and you know, it's always it's always guys that you don't think of that kind of step up to the next level, and that takes me to Juan Uribe, and going back, you know, from from his days with the White Sox, having a couple big hits in the playoffs in 2005 when they won the World Series, to you know what he did in the postseason for the Giants in 2010, Juan Uribe just strikes me as a as a guy that's just quiet for the regular season, and somehow takes his game to the next level in the postseason. Yeah, definitely so. Um, I agree with you. I do remember what he did with the, the White Sox and the Giants. So it's kind of, you know, amazing. It's totally unexpected. If the guy could have caught that bunch, the whole thing would have been different. But he didn't. Man, I tell you, going back to that bunt, do you think that's a situation that if he gets the bunt down, Puig's on third, Gonzalez goes to Kimball in that spot? Definitely. Yeah. No question. I mean, Crawford is also a strikeout pitcher, but not like Kimball. Nobody's like Kimball. Yeah, and I think it's a situation, and going back to what I said before, is a situation that things just happen so fast there. The double, the missed bunt, then the home run, and all of a sudden, you know, there's, there's no lead to protect anymore. Uh, what, is, what is your feeling in regards to using, uh, you know, let's say a guy like Kimbrell for two innings in the postseason? Do you think that that's something that Freddie Gonzalez should have considered? Obviously, it's hindsight. You, wanna, you may be directed to say yes. But, do you, you know, what do you think are the, the, the dynamics in changing a pitcher like that's game? He's, he's pitched nine, ninth innings for his entire career. All of a sudden, now he's going to have to get six outs instead of nine. Maybe you can make the case that that gives the Braves the best chance. Yeah, 
Well, I think back, John, to the 1996 World Series, where Bobby Cox inserted Mark Wohlers in the eighth inning, and he gave up that three-run homer to Wainwright. Yes. And that was the first time that year that Wohlers was put in before the ninth inning. So maybe Freddie had that in mind, too. Man, I'll tell you, and I've gotten this, uh, you know, a hundred times, just uh, the fact that the, the dynamics of these relief pitchers have changed. You look at a guy like Lee Smith, who hopefully someday will get into Baseball's Hall of Fame, may have really been the last of that guy, that, that generation of pitchers that can go out there and pitch two innings, particularly in the postseason. And let's be honest, I mean, the way, the way the starters are set up, going six innings, being good enough, uh, you, you need to have a closer that's able to kind of just take it to that next level, all of a sudden maybe get out of their element a little bit and be able to get some more outs in the playoffs. Yeah, it's definitely true. I mean, even the great Mariano Rivera, when you look back at the 19, 2001 World Series, he pitched a little bit in the eighth inning there, too, and didn't survive the ninth inning. So, you know, everything's a crapshoot. Things change in the playoffs. I mean, Chris Medlin, for example, getting back to the break for a second, he was the National League Pitcher of the Month for September. His earned run average was 1.00. He got racked up in four innings of the opening game of the playoffs against the Dodgers. Julio Tehran didn't have a game as bad all year as he did in his one playoff start against the Dodgers. But I think that the difference for Tehran was not having Gerald Laird catching him. And you know what? Laird hits, too. And he has postseason experience. McCann didn't hit a lick after Labor Day. And I just think that they made the mistake using McCann, especially against all the left-handed Dodgers starters. And I tell you, it's something that definitely did have its factor. Once again, John Pielli here with Dan Schlossberg, well-known baseball author. And, you know, I do want to ask you about your, your new book in a little bit. Um, in regards to Brian McCann, obviously he's a guy that has a very, uh, very big presence in the Braves clubhouse. You saw that throughout the season. You know, on a team that doesn't have Chipper Jones anymore, he is certainly the go-to guy as far as the leader of that team. Uh, do you, you think it, your gut feeling, do the Braves retain him next year? Do you think they want to retain him? What do you think is going to go on with Brian McCann as he hits free agency? McCann is history. You, can, you heard it here first if you didn't hear it anywhere else. McCann's going to go for several reasons. Number one, you don't give a 30-year-old catcher a five-year contract. Yes. Secondly, the Braves can't afford it. Um, their owners just aren't going to go for that. They have a lot of guys in arbitration now. Uh, thirdly, he's no longer the face of this franchise. Freddie Freeman is not the face of the franchise. He's the best player on the team by far. He might even be the National League MVP this year. Plus, here's a big factor. Evan Gaddis is a catcher. He's not a left fielder. His misplays in left field really helped the Dodgers win the playoffs. He's a pretty good defensive catcher. In fact, he's got a better arm than Brian McCann. So he's going to be the catcher next year. There's no doubt about it. Hey, you heard it here first, man. Dennis Flossberg says Brian McCann will not be back with the Braves next year, and that's not that's obviously not a bad statement at all. You look at the demand that's going to be out there, teams perhaps like the Yankees, maybe even the Phillies. I can even see, oddly enough, you know, some small market teams maybe putting together a, a two, three-year contract offers for him to at least consider. But, yeah, going on to Evan Gaddis, do you think Evan Gaddis has what it takes to be an everyday major league catcher? We obviously know he can do it with the bat. Very definitely. In fact, if you look at how many home runs he hit and how few at-bats he had all year, and there were long stretches where he didn't play at all, not even as a pitch hitter. The guy had a great year. I mean, he, he had the most runs better than any rookie in the National League. He could be rookie of the year. I don't think he will be. I think that's going to be Jose Fernandez from the Marlins. But that is a fantastic future. I think he's going to be a 30 to 40 home run guy every year. No, he very well could be, and I tell you, if he could just, uh, if, if he could, you know, not be a liability behind the plate, which I think 
uh, is, you know, you look at a lot of catchers that haven't been great defensive catchers but have been able to be serviceable. Obviously, what he does offensively will certainly, uh, you know, you know, change the other direction. But, Dan, yeah, before I let you go, I want you to get into your latest book. Of course, you've written book, you know, books about uh, the 300-game winners in baseball, Milo Hamilton, a lot of, you know, a lot of very, very good books that, you know, I've had the opportunity to read, and I know a lot of our listeners have too. Tell us a little bit about your latest book. Latest book is with former umpire Al Clark, who umpired 26 years in the major leagues, but it was number nine on the list of games umpired at the time he retired in 2001. He actually went to jail for memorabilia fraud, and there was a federal crime, it's jail fraud, and this happened several years after he retired. So the title of the book is Cold, Alec, But Safe, A Baseball Umpire's Journey to the University of Nebraska Press. It's going to come out in March 2014. It's a great story, and Ben Affleck is already talking about making it into a movie, so we're pretty psyched. No, I'll tell you, and obviously, you know, your writing skills are phenomenal, and I'm actually looking forward to reading it. I'm going to pick it up myself. Listen, Dan, I want to thank you for having some time. You know, a lot of, a lot of great insight with the Atlanta Braves, and, and, you know, best of luck to next season, man. Thanks. Okay, John, one last thought I want to give you. Uh, you talked about Gaddis maybe not being the best defensive catcher, but a good hitter. Brian McCann fits that same description. No, very, very good point, man. And I tell you, you know, you look at McCann, the fact that he's been there a while. I think pitchers in general coming up through the Atlanta system are a little more, uh, are a little more used to him. So that may give a little misconception that he may be a little better defensive, or not as good defensively as he gets credit for. Yeah, this is true. Uh, but he doesn't have the arm that Gaddis has. Gaddis has a terrific arm, and he's a, a good plate blocker, a good game caller. I think the Braves are going to be very happy with him if they're catcher for years to come. No, I think you're right, man. Listen, Dan, I want to thank you for having some time. Best of luck to you, and keep up the good work. Thanks, son. Thanks for calling in. I'll see you. Hopefully you guys enjoyed that spot. Dan Schlossberg does a phenomenal job following the Braves. And, of course, you know, he's a very knowledgeable baseball man. He's, he's written a series of books. And hopefully you guys check out his latest book, which is going to come out in the early part of March. But John Pielli here, Passball Show, MTR Radio Network. Take our first break at this hour. We'll be back with a lot more stuff going on after this. Are you searching for something different for your child's education? Consider Atlantic Christian School, where faith and quality education meet. Listen to what one of our students has to say about their experience at ACS. Atlantic Christian School is an amazing school. It has many different qualities that set it apart from public schools. It is an extremely safe environment where students care and look after each other. There is a Bible class where students learn about God and grow closer to Him. In Bible class, we do Chop Shop. It is where we learn to dissect God's words so we can hear his direction for our lives. They have service projects where we learn to serve our Lord and community. Atlanta Christian School is a wonderful place that changes the lives of the students that go there. Come learn about our new lower tuition rates at our open house every Wednesday from 8 a.m. to 1 p.m. at 391 Zion Road in Egg Harbor Township or enroll today. Visit us on the web at acseht.org or call 653-1199. Atlanta Christian School, where character, Christ, and community count. What's up, everybody? This is James Flippin. And Joey Baboots. We host the morning show together, and every morning we start up our cars and make the drive up to the studio. And you know, we always see one or two accidents along the way. We wanted to make sure our listeners know where to go for the best in car care in South Jersey. That's right, James. Red Rose Body Shop. That's Red Rose Body Shop specializes in collision and framework. They're the best in South Jersey for paint and body work, unibody framework, free towing, and free estimates. So call today, 609-927-9454 and check out their website, www.redroseautobody.com 
follow them on Facebook and Twitter. Red Rose Body Shop, 2033 Ocean Heights Avenue, Egg Harbor Township, New Jersey, 609-927-9454. Red Rose Body Shop is South Jersey's collision specialist. 609-927-9454 or redrosebodyshop.com. Been in an accident? Take your car to the professionals at Red Rose Body Shop. Oh, yeah. Welcome back. John Pielli, Passball Show, MTR Radio Network. Hour two, of course, on a radio program. I'm going to jump right into an interview that I recorded with former Major League First Baseman outfielder Pete LeCocq. And Pete, of course, played with the Chicago Cubs uh, from 1972 to 1976. The Royals from 77 to 80. Ends up finishing his career with a couple of years or at least a year or so that didn't work out so well for him in Japan. Pete is the son of Hollywood Squares host Peter Marshall. And we get in a lot of interesting things going on with his playing career. Just pardon a little bit. There's a little bit of audio issues throughout towards the end of it. But you should hear everything pretty clearly. Hopefully you guys enjoy this interview with former Major League First Baseman outfielder Pete LeCock. Good afternoon. This is John Pielli. I'm here with former Major League outfielder, first baseman Pete LeCock. Pete, what's going on, man? Well, that's a beautiful day here in uh, Arizona. And, uh, you know, I'm looking forward to the season starting again. It's fun seeing the postseason, though. Nah, I tell you, man, just watching some of the games, man, I tell you, the postseason really over the last couple of years has kind of added a little more excitement with all the extra playoff games. To me, it's uh, one of those things that, you know, I don't think baseball fans really embraced it initially, but now the fact that there's so many more teams involved, it's, you know, it's kind of fun. Well, it, you know, it really is. I mean, I see when I played, when we played, we won our, you know, division. We played a five-game series to go to the World Series. And it was tough. I mean, you lose that first game, that second game's must-win, and uh, it can get very intense. But uh, this is really crazy. Tampa Bay's just, um, you know, one game just hanging on every game. It seems like. Yeah, I tell you, you watch, you know, the way it's going, and you know, you listen, you don't necessarily even have to have a rooting interest to go on and watch some solid baseball every night. I guess that's probably the one advantage over the games before that, you know, as a as a person that's following the game. You know, you got the the five game division, you know, the five game championship series and the World Series, and then all of a sudden it's over. Now you got so many different levels, and you know, the opportunity to see four baseball games in a night. I mean, it's you know, it's kind of exciting. It's it's a blast, and you know, I love to see Pittsburgh. You know, Clint Hurdle and I are teammates with the Royals, and what a great job he's done with Pittsburgh and and that whole organization. But if you look around, he's done a a good job wherever you want. Madden is excellent. I mean, there's some really great managers out there. And uh, they're really some good baseball. Nah, very true, man. Of course, Pete, you know, you, you obviously had a you know good playing career yourself. You came up with the Chicago Cubs. And, you know, you, you, know, you started out, you know, you, you ended up uh, putting up some good seasons. Tell us a little bit about the beginning of your career, being drafted, and then uh, playing for the Chicago Cubs. You know, well, you know, I, I was right at the end of a big era in baseball. It, you know, baseball was a lot different, you know, when I first started playing to where it is today. But uh, there weren't as many teams. Uh, you know, 
there weren't as many foreign players. Uh, but, you know, what a what a great time I had. You know, we had Sano, Kessinger, Becker, Pepitone, Hunley, Williams, Hickman, Jenkins, Pappas, a lot of older guys when I got brought up. And they, you know, they really made me feel like part of the team. And it was it was a great experience for me, even though we, we weren't uh, a winning team. Yeah, no, very true, man. And I tell you, you know, you, you end up playing for some teams that obviously weren't so good, but you just mentioned a chance to chance to play with, you know, the, the older players, the kind of the old guard. Um, you know, how, how much was it, it, it as far as a transition watching, you know, some of the older players like let's say like a Santo was kind of near the end. Uh, you know, how much was it a transition to going from a team that was led kind of by the older guys, the leaders to the new generation of player that was coming in? Well, you know, it was it was. I'll tell you, it was hard. Um, you know, the new the new baseball, when I went over to the Royals in the American League, you got a whole different style of baseball. Um, you know, the thing that I like about the, uh, you know, the National League, like, I, I don't like the DH, I, I, even though I DH'd a lot in my career. Um, you know, I like the National League type baseball. But then the American League was different. Plus, you know, when I was with the Royals, we were always winning, and that made it a big difference, you know, playing playoffs at Yankee Stadium and then, you know, the World Series in Philadelphia, you know, things like that. It's just really exciting. But, um, yeah, Pete, of course, you end up getting a chance, uh, you know, with, with the Cub teams. You, you play up there until 76, and then you join the Kansas City Royals, and the Royals were obviously known as one of one of the better teams in the American League. You know, first, and I know you hit on it a little bit before, but tell us a little bit about the transition from going to a National League club like the Chicago Cubs to an American League team like the Kansas City Royals because it was it was certainly a bigger difference then than it is nowadays. Absolutely. Um, you know, the 2-0 changeups, the 2-0 curveballs, 3-1 curveballs. You know, in the National League, you saw fastball, a lot of fastball. But, I mean, the whole game was pretty much different because of the DH. Um, you know, it was great because um, I went from a, a place where they tried to hit home runs to a, the biggest ballpark in baseball. And with Whitey Herzog there, he really, you know, looked at good pitching and good defense on his baseball games. Trying to score a run here, a run there. You know, Willie Wilson get on steal the base. You get him over, you get him in and score a run. You know, and you play good defense and you pitch well. And, you know, just every year we won 100 games or more. And uh, so there must be some, some good things about that type of baseball. You look at the teams in the playoffs, you know, most of the teams are, have really good defense and really good pitching. Uh, again, pitching was everything. But it was different because we had a lot of good pitchers with the Royals where we didn't have a lot of good pitchers for the, you know, the Cubs. Plus, a lot of them were at the end of the career. I still think Fergie Jenkins is probably the the greatest modern-day pitcher in baseball. Look at his stats, you know, 278 or so complete games. You know, uh, all his wins, you know, all the innings he pitched. It, it was remarkable. And compared to where it is today, starters just go six or seven innings, they throw the setup in, get an eight-inning guy, and they get closers, you know, and everybody, that's the way baseball is nowadays, in, in the National League and the American. Yeah, it's definitely changed. And I'll tell you one thing that you, you mentioned was pretty interesting. The, you talk about the, the designated hitter in the American League and playing for a guy like Whitey Herzog, who you know eventually becomes a very a very successful National League manager as well. But he almost brings like a National League style of baseball to the American League. 
you know, once, once the designated hitter starts to establish himself, it started out by just being, let's say, the extra pinch hitter that gets four at-bats. Teams were starting to pick on and, re, you know, pick up and realize that, hey, if we put a big slugger in there and do, don't put him in the field, that could be an asset to our team. So a lot of teams were started to kind of uh, go around the, uh, the notion of going with power, home runs, stuff like that. Whitey Herzog was different. He was a guy that kind of uh, implemented a lot of small ball in the games, good defense, good pitching. Uh, you know, guys that could run and steal the extra base. We had, we had like, you know, looking around, we had a lot of guys that could really run. You had Amosons, you had Willie Wilson, you had Al Callens, you know, you had Frank White, Frank Pontek. You know, these guys, you know, they could run, and they could also play great defense. And Whitey was that type of, he was that type of manager. But I think, you know, one of the things that really was great about Whitey is everybody wanted to play for him. You know, they liked him. Like, man, everybody wants to play for you. Know, I think people play better when you have people that you want to play for. You know, like Melbourne, you know, the, the guys just want to play for them. They have fun. Every day they have fun. Couldn't hurt them. You know, after he loses a game, he sits there at a press conference and he always has a smile on his face and says, hey, man, we're going to get him tomorrow. And, uh, you, know, he doesn't, you know, he doesn't make excuses. He doesn't do anything like that. It's just great. Now, no question about it. Once again, John Pielli here, former Major League First Baseman outfielder Pete Lecoq. Now, uh, you know, you look you, you look at some of the Royal teams you played for. Obviously, you came to the organization at a time that they were they were very good. You know, you get a chance to be part of postseason teams in 77, 78, you know, again in 1980. Uh, tell us a little bit about, you know, going from, let's say, a Chicago Cub team that were, you know, kind of perennial second division clubs to a Kansas City Royal team that was, you know, you thought could win the World Series just about every year. Well, you know, what a difference that is. I mean, you know, at one point, in, uh, I think it was in the 1980 season, we won 16 games in a row and lost one, and we won 13 in a row. So basically, we did 29 in a row in one part of the season. You know, at that point, you just start, you know, every game we went out there, if we would be fine in the ninth inning, we always thought we could come back and win the game. And I think that it's important. One of the things, you know, I don't know if you noticed with the Royals this year, but once George Brett you know, became the hitting coach. He really wasn't the hitting coach. He was the, the coach that teached these guys how to win. You know, uh, I think they just didn't know how to. And I think he brought a great attitude. You know, and then, it, and then you know, he retired, but he still stayed with the ball club, you know, pumping these guys up and teaching them how to win baseball games. Look at George Hendricks for you know, Tampa Bay. He's a great coach. Everybody respects him. He, he teaches guys. No, very true, man. And I'll tell you, you know, you, you have a guy that has that type of impact on the players to just, you know, number one, George Brett being known and everybody knew how great of a hitter he was when he came came in as a hitting coach. But he, he did, you could tell with guys like Eric Hosmer and stuff like that, that he, he did he did get some results right away. And you know, you know, Kansas City Royal team that let's let's be honest, right now probably isn't too far away, but is a far cry of the you know from the teams that you had the opportunity to play for and George Brett got to play for. Yeah, but we had Mr. Coughlin as another one at that time. You know, they're working huge multi-million-dollar contracts, but he went out and spent as much money as, as he wanted to to get the right players in there. And uh, you know, that was always you know, and yeah, uh, you know, his company was a great very successful company runs over into the organization. 
you know, he demanded, you know, that he win. He wanted to win. Where today, you know, sometimes it doesn't happen. You just want to make money. That's what the Royals have done for a long time, and I think the Ghost has really turned things around over the early. And, uh, you know, they, I think they uh, are on their way to learning how to win again. Yeah, very true. And I tell you, you know, you got a chance to play for the Royals teams in the, in the late 70s. They seem to be, you know, ju- just good enough to lose to the Yankees. And, of course, in 1980, uh, you know, the fortunes change a little bit. They beat the Yankees in the, in the uh, ALCS. And you end up in the World Series against the Philadelphia Phillies. Tell us a little bit about your experience in the 1980 World Series and what it meant to you to be playing at that stage. Well, you know, what the hard part of the whole thing is, we slept the Yankees away, right? I think nine days before we played again. And it is a killer. It's just like when, when Colorado won early, and they had to wait eight days. And, I mean, we got we got beat the first two games in Philly just like that because we just we tried, you know, bringing our AAA team in, playing tennis squad games, doing all kinds of things. It's just not like playing. That's why I think some of these teams have an advantage when they're playing all these critical games and then going into a series. I think that helps them. I really, I really do. I, I don't, when you're winning, it's hard. And, uh, you know, it was, it was a, the World Series, of course, is a great experience. And, uh, um, but really, the more of the experience you have in the playoffs, especially with the game, you know, because it doesn't mean anything unless you go to the World Series. And if you go to the World Series, you're there. And we had such a hard time trying to get past and work all these teams. You know, twice we got walked off. Yeah, and of course, you know your your, uh, your last appearance in the World Series ends up being your your last major league game. You end up, uh, you know, going over to Japan playing for the Yokohama TIO Whales. Uh, tell us a little bit about that experience there, which I would assume probably wasn't the best thing in the world. You know, it's hard. You're a little far over there. You know, you can't talk to your players. You know, you can't communicate. So you don't feel like you're part of the team there. The only you have is just one other American player. And, uh, you know, my American player was a lot younger than me. And he was single and I was married. And, you know, I had, my wife had a child over there. I mean, so it had its difficulties, that's for sure. You know, and they didn't care about winning. All they cared about was putting on a good show. And, uh, you know, they have tie games over there. They, you know, they have time limits. And they, you know, they have rules that they can have all the time. You know, umpires can be, can be grabbed by the managers and pushed. And, you know, there's all, and there's, there's all kinds of strange things that happen over there. Uh, it is, it, to me, it wasn't the best baseball in the world. But, you know, it really helped me financially. You know, you got to remember, when I first started playing baseball, the minimum salary was $18,000. Wow. The deal gets four hundred and ninety thousand minimum stuff. So, you know, I wasn't there for all the big money, so I made some good money in Japan. And you know, thank God for my pension. I can I make just as much as anybody else for my pension. And uh, that's really important for players, you know. Uh, especially some of these players like you know, like Curtis and Jenkins. I don't think he, he made a hundred thousand dollars for just a couple of years of his career. And so like that he didn't make Thank God being a Hall of Famer, he makes a lot of money now doing the strength of design yet. So, and they deserve it. Those guys deserve it because they didn't have all the big money. But our pensions are all the same. 
No, listen, man. I'm going to thank you for having some time, Pete. Appreciate you being part of the program. And, uh, you know, hopefully you can stay in touch, man. Thanks a lot. Hopefully you guys enjoyed that interview with Pete Lecoq, former first baseman outfielder for the Cubs and Royals. We're going to take our next break, and we'll be back with a lot more stuff going on. Past Ball Show, MTR Radio Network, back after this. Welcome to MTRRadio.com. You can listen to our live programming Monday through Friday. Get your voice heard by calling us at 609-910-0687 and on Facebook and Twitter at MTR Radio. Thanks for tuning in to MTRRadio.com. Check out the Android Marketplace and iPhone App Store for the MTR Radio app. 24-7 streaming live and on demand. MTR. Five, five, four, four, three, three, two, one, one. You're listening to MTR Radio. We have ignition. Strap in. You're about to listen to the hottest sounds on MTR Radio. You're listening to MTR Radio. A flippin' out radio production. And you've got it. Hot, 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 hot. Blaze, blaze in the steel. Always covering the most current topics today. Check us out on mtrradio.com. We will offer packages to advertise on our website and on MTR Radio. Get your name in front of over five and a half million people. Advertise on MTR today. Email info at mtrmedia.com for details. Welcome back, John Pielli, Passball Show, MTR Radio Network. Hopefully you guys are enjoying this program. We're going to stay along the lines of Bases Empty Blog and everything that's involved in that. And we're going to get into what is the 22-year anniversary of the death of Leo DeLip. Leo DeRocher, of course, had a very long journey through the major leagues, and you can check that out on johnpielli.com, Bases Empty Blog, mtrmedia.com slash John Pielli. And, of course, any of your thoughts, feel free to tweet at me, at John underscore Pielli. So hopefully you guys uh, check this out because, uh, you know, you break down what Leo DeRocher was about. And, of course, his, his life is portrayed or part of his life is portrayed in the movie 42 where he ends up being kind of a, a large influence, a large supporter of Jackie Robinson playing in the major leagues and breaking the color barrier. And, you know, I got into this before, and I don't want to get too much off subject, but Leo DeRocher, Brantz, Rich, Ricky, two guys that get a lot of credit for bringing Jackie Robinson in, and it did take balls. I mean, you got to look at a you know pre-integration time where Major League Baseball, from their own mind or for whatever reason, didn't feel they were ready to embrace um, you know, African-American players in the game of baseball. And, you know, Leo DeRocher, Branch Rickey, yes, though they ended up supporting it, they didn't support it for the right reason. They, they, they weren't necessarily uh, non-racist people. They weren't necessarily against 
the fact that player, you know, the segregation and everything that was going on in the 1940s. They were interested in winning, and I think that's the major factor, the major, uh, you know, reason that Branch Rickey and then uh, Leo DeRocher backed, you know, bringing in an African American player to the major leagues. And, and I think sometimes they get a little too much credit, and that's why I feel like I need to say this. These are guys that, that were motivated by the money. They were motivated by the opportunity to win. They felt if they did tap into uh, you know, the African-American players, which nobody else was willing to do. And remember, it took a while for some teams to even do it. The Yankees, the Phillies, uh, you know, even you know, some other organizations like the Red Sox you know, didn't necessarily embrace it until years later. And it, this gave the Dodgers an advantage because, you know, they felt once they bring in one African-American player, they could bring in others. And if they could get the best talent from the Negro Leagues and from, you know, these, these other leagues that weren't being tapped into by other Major League Baseball teams, they would have an advantage and obviously it would help them out for a while. But back to Leo DeRocher. Leo DeRocher, a guy that I think a lot of people didn't even realize how many years he spent in the Major Leagues. Uh, here's a guy that started his career in 1925, October 2nd, 1925. He made his Major League debut as a pinch hitter for the New York Yankees. He made an out, but the next day he got in as a pinch runner and scored a run. His final game as a Major League manager came on September 7th, 1973, as he led the Houston Astros to their second winning season in the team's history. He was also part of the first, being at the helm for the final 31 games of the 1972 season. 48 years as a player, manager, coach, and even once as a broadcaster. And of course, I mentioned that 22 years ago, on October 7th, DeRocher passed away at age 86. And obviously that was, what, 18 years after he was out of the game of Major League Baseball. But, you know, a guy that ended up being a marginal shortstop. He wasn't a great shortstop, but he was, he was a good shortstop. He was a useful player. Um, you know, ended up staking around in the game for a long time. And, you know, of course, you know, the, the stories exist out there, and they make him out to be a bad guy. Some people say he was a thief, that he stole money from Babe Ruth during his time with the Yankees. Now, obviously, his association with gamblers, which led to his suspension in the 1947 season of the manager of the Dodgers. And, of course, he had issues with getting along with umpires and the media. Some people make him out to be a guy that, you know, wasn't necessarily a, a good guy in regards to relationships with women. But he, he was a winner. He won a World Series twice as a player for the 28 Yankees, the 34 Cardinals, once as a manager for the 1954 New York Giants. And, you know, here's a guy that was known as a winner, and that's why he got jobs, you know, with the Cubs and, of course, with the Astros later on in his career. But, you know, you look at, you know, the fact that he, he ended up playing a lot. He, he was there almost 17 years from 1925 to 1945. Of course, the latter part of his career he was a player manager. He came back a couple times to play a couple games on the field. He started his managerial career in 1935 with the Dodgers, was a player manager through the 41 season, and returned for parts of the 43 and 45 season. He led the Dodgers to the first National League playoff series in the history of the league in 1946. You know, what happened, they ended up finishing in a tie with the St. Louis Cardinals, they ended up having to play a best two out of three to win the pennant. Of course, the Cardinals were the ones that advanced to play the Boston Red Sox that year. He was planning to integrate Jackie Robinson under the 1947 team. Uh, owner Branch Rickey had signed Robinson, who spent the 1946 season playing for the Montreal Royals, and, with the intention that he would be on the team in 1947 if all went well. 
He was the right manager for Robinson to play for, as his tough demeanor generally commanded the player's respect. And the following is a quote that could be attributed to something that DeRocher said to the clubhouse and his players in the, 19, in the 1947 spring training and, of course, is heard in a movie 42. I do not care if the guy is yellow or black, if he has stripes like a fucking zebra. I'm the manager of this team, and I say he plays. What's more, I say he can make us all rich. And any of you, if, and if any of you cannot use the money, I will see that you are all traded. And of course, the, the he ends up not managing that team, ironically, because of his, his his ties to gambling, being suspended for the 1947 season. But the suspension also had to do what a lot of people don't realize is part of his falling out with former Dodgers president and general manager Larry McPhail, who at this point was working for the New York Yankees. An argument over a decision by McPhail to bring a couple of DeRocher's coaches to the New York Yankees led to a confrontation. Both men accused each other of associating with known gamblers. And, of course, you know about DeRocher being suspended. You know, some of it had to do with Larry McPhail and some of the stuff that he said. McPhail had some ties to Commissioner Happy Chandler and I, I think had more to do with it than was ever let out to be. Bert Schotten ended up managing the team in 47. They end up winning the NL pennant. Robinson's part of the whole thing. But ideally, Branch Rickey wanted Leo DeRocher to manage that team. Could he have done as well? I think so. But what ended up happening is DeRocher never establishes himself as a manager for the Dodgers again. He returns for the 1948 season. Um, you know, his, you know, things do not go well. DeRocher ends up leaving and after 73 games. Bert Schotten took over again. And then he takes a job with the New York Giants, the 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 rival of the Brooklyn Dodgers. And kind of, I, I don't know if it was a situation where there was, uh, you know, he did it because, but obviously something that had to be taken as a knock to the Brooklyn Dodgers uh, to go over to the rival Giants. But one thing he did say is that he looked at the Giants and Mel Ott, who was a longtime manager and, of course, a great player, a Hall of Famer, the whole thing, and he said that nice, nice guys finish last. And he kind of looked over at Mel Ott and said, hey, he's a really nice guy, but he's never going to win over there. They're going to be in seventh or eighth place every season. And uh, ironically, DeRocher was selected to be Mel Ott's replacement with, this, with the New York Giants. And from 1948 to 1955, he led the team to two pennants and the 1954 World Series. It's first since 1933. Of course, the Giants wouldn't win another one until they won in 2010. The 1950s were about teams moving and baseball taking over territory in the central and western parts of the country. After the Dodgers and Giants moved to California, he joined the Los Angeles Dodgers as a coach under Walter Austin in the 1960s. After that is when he started, he became a broadcaster of the game of the week for NBC in the late 1950s. He returned to managing in 1966 with the Cubs. And I think it was a kind of an interesting situation there because, you know, it looked like the game had passed DeRocher by. It looked like DeRocher was pretty much finished with his time in, as, as a manager. There was no reason for him to come back. Obviously, money probably wasn't a problem for him. But he took over the Chicago Cubs, a team that was in last place in, his, in the first year he was there. Led him to six straight winning seasons before he was let go in the middle of the 1972 season. The Houston Astros quickly picked him up. And he managed them through the end of that season, leading the Astros to a winning record for the first time in their history. Same thing in 1973 before he stepped down after that season. Obviously, he was not perfect. He was not loved by everyone. He was known to have a lot of enemies in his life. But he was a winner. 
He won as a player. He won as a manager. He won as a coach. Remember with the Dodgers, he was a he was part of World Series championships team with the Dodgers in 1963 and 1965 as well. The teams he was part of were better because he was there. As a player, he had a fire to him that was contagious. It, it bled on to the rest of the players. And obviously it's something that you could talk about maybe not being a possibility now because of the way that the players are treated now, the way the players are paid now. But he brought the fire as a player and as a manager. They demanded the way the players played the game the way he did. He was a Hall of Famer before his death in 1991, but he never got the call. He should have been selected years before he died. He is a Hall of Famer now since 1994, and of course that happened after his death. DeRocher probably would not be able to handle being a manager in this generation like I just touched on. The overplayed players would tune him out, knowing they, they're staying probably longer than he would anyway. But when he managed, he could give his players that motivation by challenging them. Also, he had control of what players he could keep and what players he could get rid of. Kind of back to what I said before about you know his little speech he had to the Dodgers, I'll make sure that you're traded if you don't want to play with Jackie Robinson. But... You know what? The honest thing, now that he's gone and now that you know he's been gone from this, from, from this earth as, a, as opposed to this game for a while, it's safe to say there's not going to be another like Leo DeRocher. And the problem is baseball probably won't allow it. Leo DeRocher was a great baseball man, a ba- great baseball mind. He, he, he showed it as, when he was a player in the 20s and the 30s and the 40s. He showed it as a manager of the way he could get his teams to follow him. I'm sure a lot of players didn't like him when he was their manager, but they sure as hell played for him. And DeRocher is, is, is a Hall of Fame manager that didn't get a chance to be inducted while he was still alive. And honestly, that was an embarrassment to baseball. They should have put this guy in while he was still alive and just for some reason decided not to. I'm going to finish off the program here talking about something conventional. And I do want to bring this out because, you know, as, as Saturday comes and this show is playing, we could be talking about a Pittsburgh Pirate, Los Angeles Dodger, NLCS. And, you know, at the time of the show's recording, of course, the, the Pirates and Cardinals are yet to play Game 5. The Pirates could win or the Cardinals could win. Obviously, the Cardinals are at home. They have the advantage, probably have the better starting pitcher with Adam Wainwright going. But... You know, that's neither here nor there. The Cardinals could be playing the Dodgers, and, you know, what I'm about to say doesn't even matter. But an interesting thing that I I don't think has been brought up is the way the format sets for home teams in the postseason. Now, the Pittsburgh Pirates finished with 94 wins but won the wild card. The Los Angeles Dodgers finished with 92 wins but won the division. Do the Dodgers get home field advantage because they're a division winner? And my answer to that would probably be yes. Uh, now, do the Pirates should the Pirates have home field advantage because they had more victories? I think you can make a case that you're probably right there. The Pittsburgh Pirates won 94 games. And I understand didn't win the division, but that was because the St. Louis Cardinals won 98 games. If they were in the National League West, they they would have won the National League West because they would have had more wins than the Dodgers. Obviously, the Braves had 96 wins, so it's not an issue, uh, you know, in regards to the East, but. You know, a team that wins more games as a wild card winner, I think should have home field advantage if they happen to be facing a team that's a division winner. But if things were the other way and the wild card winner happens to have more victories than the team that they're playing in the first round, 
uh, you know, you know it, it, that would never happen, obviously, because you got the the fact that the you know the, the wild card team, uh, there's no way they could have more wins than anybody in the league. There's going to be a team that has more wins than them, and that's how the the rounds and the, the teams that end up playing are determined. That the team that has the most wins in the league plays the wild card team. Obviously, that wild card team will never have more wins than the team that has the most wins in the league. So that being said, should the wild card team have a chance to host a league championship series or a World Series if they happen to have more wins than their opponent? Because what happens if uh, the wild the wild card team happens to be the Pittsburgh Pirates and they go to the World Series? And they have more wins than the team that they're playing in a World Series. Should they have home field advantage? Well, obviously that's negated because home field advantage is determined by who wins the All-Star game. Ah, man, I'll tell you, you know, you get to the, you get to this point where you try to figure out what goes on and why you can't just go to a simple format of the team that has the most wins hosting a series. And, of course, the World Series, that's a whole other discussion. It used to be rotated year in, year out, American League, National League team, and then going back and forth. Obviously, that's not going to happen. But, you know, to me, it's a situation where I think you should have these series determined, and the World Series determined, for that matter, by the team that has more wins than the other one. And if the Pittsburgh Pirates happen to have more wins as a wild card team, then the team that they end up playing in the NLCS, the Dodgers, they should be the hosting team of the series. And I know Dodger fans won't like to hear that. I know fans of teams that win the division won't like that. But it just should add more motivation to win more games than a team that happens to be in a wild card. I'm going to finish this portion of the program by reading a letter from the Jared Dane Scotto Foundation. And the letter is written by Jared's father, Dominic. Jared died of a very aggressive form of cancer. It's called epithaloid sarcoma and it took his son's life in less than two years after the initial diagnosis the very aggressive form of cancer is extremely difficult to diagnose epithaloid sarcomas are more common in males and affects young adult populations in a large retrospective study 74 percent of the patients presented between the ages of 10 and 39 and you know was an average age of about 27 years Currently, genetic testing is starting to show promise in differentiating different types of sarcomas, including epithaloid sarcoma. The foundation has teamed up with the Sarcoma Foundation of America in striving to raise funds for a type of research. As of now, there are very little limited funding for the epithaloid sarcoma research. They're hosting the third annual fundraiser this coming October 19th from 7 p.m. to midnight at the Moore Catholic High School located at 100. 100 Merrill Avenue in Staten Island, New York. The Jarrett Dane Scotto Foundation would deeply appreciate any contribution by you or your organization. Donation can include products or memorabilia and will be used for gift raffles on the night of the event. Your appreciation is greatly appreciated with gratitude and appreciation. Dominic Scotto, the president of the Jarrett Dane Scotto Foundation. So hopefully that's something that, you know, hopefully the word gets out and they're able to raise money for obviously a difficult and painful form of cancer, which ends up taking a young man's life within about two years. A terrible, terrible situation. But once again, John Pielli, Passball Show, MTR Radio Network. Hopefully you guys enjoyed the program. We'll be back with you next week. Uh, thanks to Pete LeCock. Thanks to Bill Zeltman. 
as well as Dan Schlossberg for being part of this program. We'll be back with you next week right here on the MTR Radio Network.